What's up, everyone? Welcome to the latest episode of Note to Scene. This week, we got some news from Black Veil Brides, 303, a radio rundown, and part one of our deep dive on the rise of the Devil Wears Prada. You can listen to the official Note to Scene radio show over at 94.3 The X in Colorado every Saturday night from 8 to 10 p.m. local time. If you want to check it out, you're not in the area, you can download the station's app. Just search 94.3 The X in the App Store and tune in this Saturday. As always, you can listen to the songs mentioned during this episode on the Note to Scene Spotify playlist. And if you have any comments, questions, or requests for deep dives, email me at notetoscene at gmail.com. Alright, let's get started. So Black Veil Brides announced their new album, The Phantom Tomorrow, and released the lead single, Scarlet Cross. It's a pretty typical modern BVB song. Andy's way out front in the mix, guitars are buried once he comes in, super compressed vibe save for a layered hook that even a full choir couldn't even pull off. This song has already been written before by Black Veil and multiple other bands. You can definitely skip it. This album will actually be their first not to be released on a major label since We Stitched These Wounds in 2010, save for the reissue of that album which came out last year. Their last album, Valet, came out on Lava and Republic in 2018. This new record will drop next year on Sumerian. In other new music news, 303 officially returned with their first song since 2016 called Lonely Machines, which features the polarizing electronic duo 100 Gex. Honestly, if you're about that weird techno EDM that 303 made back in the day, you're probably gonna dig this. The hook doesn't suck, the mix is solid, it feels a little weird for some reason to listen to this band in a serious capacity as an adult, but ultimately I think they gave us as good of a song as we could have asked from 303 in 2020. Moving on to our radio rundown this week, MGK and Black Bear are down two spots this week at top 40, but still up over 3% in plays, so I'm not too worried. I think they still got some gas in the tank with this one. All Time Low have officially spent nine weeks at number one on alt radio, continuing the most unexpected run of 2020. We'll see if they can break out into double digits, but the song is also about to break 30 million streams on Spotify, so even that in and of itself is a good look. MGK's Bloody Valentine is still holding on to number three, even though it's down almost 5% in spins. IDK How breaks even at number five, but it's still up over 7% in plays, so all signs are still pointing up for this one. I Prevail make a big jump over a rock radio, moving from 5 to 2. This is the move we were waiting for. They're up against ACDC now for number 1, so we'll see if they can dethrone them next week. Asking Alexandria's They Don't Want What We Want moves from 17 to 15, continuing its rise to an inevitable top 10, I'm pretty sure, for this song. Bad Omens have officially broke the top 20, which is awesome, with Limits at number 19. It's up over 6% in plays this week, so this song might be catching a second wind. Bring Me the Horizon's Teardrops jumps almost 10 spots from 37 to 28. It's already looking much better than Parasite Eve did at this point. Architects Animals dropped from 30 to 33. I'm not too worried about this right now. It's still really early and there's always a lot of fluctuation in the bottom half of this chart due to how little spins these songs are actually getting. So like I said, this is going to be a slow burn if it's actually going to build any real momentum. We're going to have to watch it over the next few months. 
But that does it for this week's radio rundown. On to our deep dive. So I've never considered the Devil Wears Prada my favorite band or even in my top five. But it wasn't until I started putting this deep dive together that I realized how much of an impact they've had on me over the years. I wasn't around for Dear Love, but to this day I remember hearing Plagues for the first time in 2007 while I was in middle school and just instantly falling in love with them. I grew up in a pretty devout Christian household, and the scene's youth group corner gave me something to instantly latch onto when I was younger. I was the definition of a Solid State Records stan. It didn't matter what they released or if I had even heard of the band before, I just bought it. But Prada was on Rise Records, and they really served as a gateway band to the rest of the scene for me. Now, as everyone who has followed Prada over the years knows, they are far from the band that they were 10 years ago, let alone 12 or 13. There are two paths I could have taken with this dive. There's one, the survival of the Devil Wears Prada. If I did this one in 2016, I'd have said they were done and we'd just be documenting their fall. But their most recent album, The Act, proved they aren't going out without a fight. And two, the spirituality of the Devil Wears Prada. If you were to ask Mike Hranico what he believed in and where he stood in life 10 years ago, he would have told you exactly where that was with every ounce of conviction any one person could have. But now, as he and the band have aged over the last decade, that conviction has given way to a pretty notable lack of certainty. I've seen this identity crisis reflected in myself and others who grew up in the church, being met with the realization that everything that was presented as fact to us as children isn't the way we really want to live our lives as adults. Questioning the very foundation that your life was based on creates an incredible identity crisis in people. We've seen this in multiple bands over the last five years, like Under Oath and Gideon. Not necessarily a complete rejection of faith, but almost a retraction either masked in uncertainty or overcompensation in one way or another. Mike has always interested me in the way he has evolved as a vocalist and as a person. So let's start at the beginning. The Devil Wears Prada formed in 2005. There is a little confusion around the actual lineup of the band when they started. Mike Hranica is considered an original member, but he says the band had already chosen their name once he joined, so I'm assuming they were just putting the lineup together with the name already in mind and then solidified the initial lineup afterwards. I can't tell if Mike was kidding or not, but in 2015 he told Loudwire that one of the other names they tossed around for the band was Five Fish and a Fish. Obviously these guys are just terrible at naming bands. But so they formed with Mike on vocals, Jeremy DePoister on rhythm guitar and cleans, Chris Ruby on lead guitar, Andy Trick on bass, Daniel Williams on drums, and James Bainey on keyboards. They played their first show as a band on October 22nd, 2005. I actually wrote about this show on the 10 year anniversary of it in 2015 while I was at Alt Press. Their drummer Daniel had tweeted out the original flyer from the show in July, and I saved that tweet and posted a story about it on the 22nd of October. They played second that day out of an 11 band lineup. Good lord how I do not miss 6 hour plus local shows. 
But another interesting note is that a band called Demise of Eros also played that night, which Prada's current drummer, Giuseppe Capolupo, played in from 2003 through the end of 2005. This was probably one of the last shows he ever played with that band. But we won't get to Giuseppe until next week. So Prada recorded and released an EP called Patterns of a Horizon in 2005. From the get-go, they never hid the spirituality behind their existence. Just on this EP, the song Rosemary Had an Accident has the lyrics, Christ still stands perfect in my mind. Christ still stands perfect in my heart. Jesus is the beautiful structure of love. Check it out. signed to Rise Records off that demo and re-recorded each song off of it for their debut full-length, Dear Love, A Beautiful Discord, which came out on August 22nd, 2006. But not only was this Prada's first full-length, it was also Joey Sturgis's first album he ever worked on in an official production capacity. He served as the engineer, mixer, and producer, and the rest is history for him. After this, he cut his teeth with local bands like Kiss the Gunner, Death Virginia, and At the Throne of Judgment before becoming the go-to producer for Rise Records. But Joey played a massive part in Prada's career, as we'll see as we keep moving forward. Dear Love is a pretty underdeveloped metalcore album with some MySpace deathcore parts. The songs aren't very cohesive structurally, and the production isn't fantastic, but that didn't stop it from generating a ton of buzz online. Texas is South and Dogs Can Grow Beards All Over are literally still fan favorites to this day. So the band spread their wings and officially became a consistent national touring act. In June of 2007, they went out on a run with Drop Dead Gorgeous, Dance Gavin Dance, and At the Throne of Judgment. That September and October, they went out on a run with Chiodos. But if we backtrack a tiny bit, they had already begun work on Plagues with Sturgis during the winter of 2006, just a few months after Dear Love had come out. They released an unfinished demo of HTML Rules Dude on their MySpace on July 11th to promo the upcoming album. I had actually never heard this version before, but other than production quality, there isn't too much of a difference from the final Plagues track. Check it out. So Plagues was released on August 21st, 2007 through Rise Records, nearly a year to the day after Dear Love. I can't stress how important that album was for Prada's trajectory. It moved them out of any deathcore corners that may have been too inaccessible for scene kids and straight into the impending modern metalcore renaissance that was about to happen. Not many people realize it nowadays, and I know Mike doesn't want to admit it, but The Devil Wears Prada was really a forefather band for what eventually evolved into the generic core, Joey Sturgis core, Rise core, whatever you want to call it, core of the early 2010s. As we'll see next week, Prada was checked out of that world by 2011, but from 2007 through 2010, they were a bright graphic t-shirt, hot topic jeans, emo hair, 
Van Shoes Scene Metalcore Band. Plagues gave them two songs that just catapulted them to the MySpace profiles of so many scene kids. The previously mentioned HTML Rules Dude and Hey John, What's Your Name Again. It's so interesting looking back because these songs lack a lot of general structure, but for some reason they just work. Mike's ridiculous screams from his fries to his growls, Jeremy's massive emo hooks, stupid heavy breakdowns, and electronic element that the scene hadn't really experienced in this kind of metalcore before in general, and this was a pretty common thing among the Christcore bands of the scene. The lyrics were mostly metaphorical, which, whether intentional or not, made the meanings more accessible by both their Christian and secular fans. Plagues, which was also produced, mixed, mastered, and engineered by Joey Sturgis, sold 11,000 units first week and charted at number 57 on the Billboard Top 200. This was a massive jump from Dear Love, which didn't even chart, but it just proves how much hype that album gave the band. In early 2008, Prada were support alongside another young band at the time called A Day to Remember for Silverstein's Spring US headlining tour. This was really the beginning of Prada and ADTR's relationship. It's easy to forget, but during the late 2000s, these bands were almost synonymous with each other. They toured multiple times together, and it wasn't until Homesick came out that the band was well into that cycle that they surpassed Prada in terms of size. So Prada tended to headline over them, which is just wild to think about now. So TDWP spent the summer of 2008 on Warp Tour, and before that they went on a headliner with Maylene and the Sun of Disaster, Whitechapel, Gwen Stacy, and Once Nothing called the Ultimate Tour, but Warped was exactly where they needed to be on the plague cycle, and it paid off in the biggest way. They were drawing massive crowds and kids were just losing their shit. During the first date that summer, they announced that they had left Rise Records and signed to Ferret Records. Ferret has always been a really interesting label to me. They had such badass bands, but were never able to really break any of them into much real commercial success. But at one point or another, they had everyone from Killswitch Engage, Every Time I Die, and In Flames, to From Autumn to Ashes, Poison the Well, and Funeral for a Friend, and just so many others. But I actually found the original press release for the signing announcement, and Jeremy gave a quote that said, Ferret is run like an independent label where you know everyone there and work with them, but they have the resources of a major label. Obviously, the band ended up needing a little bit more of a push because Roots and the Zombie EP, which we'll talk about in a second, are the only releases they ended up putting out solely through Ferret. Dead Throne was co-released through Ferret and Roadrunner, and by 818, Prada had officially become a major label band. But on October 28th, 2008, they re-released Plagues with new artwork and a bonus DVD containing music videos, behind-the-scenes footage, and live performances from both Warped and their spring headliner. Reissues may seem insignificant on the surface and just a cash grab from the label trying to milk sales, but sometimes if they're placed just at the right moment with the right additional material, they can have a huge impact on a cycle and a band's trajectory as a whole. This is what happened with Plagues. The reissue artwork became way more popular than the original, and I think it having a brighter color scheme was just more attractive and eye-catching to kids during that era of bright colored style trends in the scene, rather than a dark 
cover with little that popped when you looked at it. Never, never, never underestimate artwork and logos and color schemes and just overall appearance when it comes to your band. We are shallow people and we judge things based on how they look, whether we want to admit it or not. The right packaging of an album can absolutely be something that gets potential listeners in the door. But anyways, in late 2008, Prada recorded a song that would, and I'm sure much to their disdain to this day, become one of their biggest moments. They covered Big Timer's smash hit Still Fly for Fearless Records' Punk Goes Crunk compilation album. I remember reading an interview with Mike where his initial thought on this song was that he just didn't want to be a band whose biggest song was a cover. Which I get, sometimes it is hard to get out from behind the shadow of a cover track. This song is just one of the best documents of late 2000s scene metalcore that we have. It has the Plague's production quality, but a little bit more structure to it with some ridiculous breakdowns, Mike keeping pace with the original flow of the song, and changing out original bars because they had to keep it youth group friendly. Like, they switched out this original lyric, with a navigation arrow headed straight to your spot, where your wife really loved me because the sex is so hot, to with a navigation arrow headed straight to IHOP, Aunt Jemima really loved me because my syrup's so hot, which didn't even end up aging well anyways, but still, hearing Mike Hrenica scream, the steering wheel's Fendi, dashboard Armani, with your baby mama, player is where you can find me, will never not make me laugh. But let's be honest, Punk Goes Crunk was a horrible, horrible mistake on almost all accounts from Fearless Records, and one listen through in 2020 to the lyrics these bands are singing will have you asking literally how did anyone think this was okay. But that's definitely a topic for a different dive. On other random Prada historical events around this time, Mike and their guitarist Chris Ruby had a joke grindcore side project band called X Gumby X that I'm sure Mike just once erased from the internet. They had their own MySpace for the project and only made a handful of songs, but the reason I bring it up is to address the infamous and highly debated grindcore cover of the SpongeBob SquarePants theme song. So yes, during the age of MySpace, deathcore, grindcore, etc., there was an era of funny breakdowns and just flat out ridiculous covers slash moments that were meant to not be taken seriously. You can literally search top funny breakdowns on YouTube and multiple compilations videos will still come up. But so this Spongebob cover, fittingly called Spongebob Grind Pants, is debated because for some reason people can't figure out exactly who made it. Most YouTube videos are labeled The Devil Wears Prada, but the comments are usually a split debate between it being X Gumby X or, for some reason, this old MySpace grindcore band called Dr. Acula, who ended up releasing a couple albums on Victory, and get ready for it. Reunited last year, released a new song, and played shows. But anyways, here's Spongebob Grindpants so you can decide for yourself if it's Prada, X Gumby X, or Dr. Acula.
bottom line here is someone made this song, and if Dr. Acula reunited, your favorite band will too. Don't worry. But back to Prada. They started recording their third full-length album with Roots Above and Branches Below in the winter of 2008 and into 2009. Prada went three for three with Joey Sturgis at this point, and it wasn't until their fourth album that they worked with a different producer. Multiple members from the band teased the record's sound in interviews ahead of the drop, generally saying it will be darker and heavier than Plagues. Des Moines was the first single from the album, released on March 13th. Right off the bat, we saw how tight this record was going to be production-wise. The track felt very concise and calculated. It kicks off with a post-hardcore hook from Jeremy and then gives way to Mike's just maniacal screams. The way they managed to infuse so much melody while still coming off as being heavy was a formula that so many scene metalcore bands ripped off after this album came out. And I know melodic metalcore was a thing way before Prada, but bands like Killswitch Engage weren't utilizing programming the way that they were, and in 2009 it just felt like something new. The band went out on a co-headlining tour with A Day to Remember leading up to the album's release. They probably averaged between 1,300 and 1,500 caps on this tour, which was a great look for them at the time, and even better for the openers Amorosa and Sky Eats Airplane. If there were tours I could go back in time and see, this would definitely be one of them. There were just so many timelines intersecting on this run, and just big things happening for a lot of bands. So Prada released With Roots Above and Branches Below on May 5th, 2009 through Ferret Records. It blew fans away. I remember going out that day and buying both Roots and The Chariot's Wars and Rumors of Wars because they both dropped on the same day. Roots is a certified scene classic. It's precise and hits every pressure point with just the right amount of force, and then gives way to massive melodies at the best moments. I want everyone to stop this episode right now and go listen to Sassafras and feel that wall of sound that I'm talking about. Joey Sturgis deserves all the credit in the world for this album and how much power it has. We're going to talk about another Prada album next week that fell short of expectations because it didn't have enough life in its mix. Sure, there is a ton of chugging on this album, and the riffs pretty much just never stop, but between how Joey put them so out front in the mix without drowning out the rest of the band and Mike's demon screams, the shit just rips your face off. The band released two official singles from this album after it dropped, Danger Wild Man and Assistant to the Regional Manager. I remember seeing the video for Danger Wild Man on MTV2 and Fuse all the time back in the day. It was so cool to see something heavy being played next to Boys Like Girls and We The Kings. Roots sold a massive 31,000 units first week and debuted at number 11 on the top 200 chart. This was a huge moment for the band and really showed how they were in the process of rising out of the scene. In support of Roots, Prada spent the summer of 2009 on Warp Tour again, and this time they ruled the main stage. They had grown tenfold over the last three years, and it showed every day in the crowds they pulled that summer. After that Warp, they started branching outside of the scene in an attempt to expand their fan base. If you're a scene band, you have to do this. At one point or another, you have to tour with bands outside of the scene. They went on a co-headliner with All That Remains with support from Story of the Year and Haste the Day in November and December of 2009. Before that, they had gone over to the UK for a run with Enter Shikari in October. 
In mid-November, they actually announced that they had canceled their Soundwave festival appearances in Australia in order to participate in a run that Mike called, quote, a tour to end all tours. It ended up being direct support for a Kill Switch Engage headliner, alongside Dark Tranquility as the opener. That's how important it is to diversify your portfolio and take every chance you can to broaden your fan base. Sometimes it works, and for Prada, it did for a minute. Sometimes it doesn't either. Summer 2010 brought more touring for the band, but also news that they had been working on a new concept EP already. In April of 2010, Mike told Alt Press, We have about two weeks to do an EP. We haven't really told anyone about it, so I'm not going to give away what the concept is. But it's going to be something really fun. A lot of bands do cover albums just for fans to enjoy and kind of laugh at. And it's going to be something kind of like that, fun, but not covers. It's not going to be a lot of full-length material, like what our next full-length will be. It's going to be, I hate to say the word, brutal, but maybe something along those lines. I love these kind of quotes that came before something that became a notable moment for a band. That vague teasing that doesn't seem important at the time, but looking back, it really puts it all into perspective. They finished working on the EP in early June of that year and revealed the track listing and August release date a month later in July. It was the fourth release in a row for the band to be produced by Joey Sturgis, who handled mixing, mastering, and engineering duties. Zombie officially dropped on August 23rd through Ferret Records and became an instant hit among the band's fans. It was dark, fast, heavy, and just gave them something new to be excited about in between albums. It almost felt like a bonus episode of a TV show or a secret level to a video game. They weren't going all in on a concept album, it was just something extra that was also actually really fucking good. It even sold around 17,000 units first week, which is a impressive for an EP that just didn't have the same promo push as an album would. Prada then headlined the Back to the Roots tour with support from Miss May I and Your Demise. After that, they spent the rest of 2010 and the beginning of 2011 touring outside of the U.S. with Bring Me the Horizon on a U.K. tour and For Today on a Canada run. By March of 2011, they had officially entered the studio again to buckle down on what would be their fourth full-length album. Adam D. from Killswitch Engage served as the official producer, mixer, and engineer for the album. Synth and keyboard production was actually still done by Joey Sturgis, so he was still 5 for 5 in being involved on Prada releases by Dead Throne. Jeremy McKinnon from A Day to Remember also handled some vocal production on the record as well. In June, it was announced that they had signed a worldwide deal with Roadrunner Records, which meant that Ferret would release the album in the U.S. and Roadrunner would push it to the rest of the world. And with that, it was revealed that Prada would release their new full-length album, Dead Throne, on September 13th. So the campaign rollout for Dead Throne is really the first time we saw Mike publicly shit on their earlier material. He said in an interview with Lithium Magazine, in regards to tracking the evolution of the band, I think the intelligence behind the album is what marks the progression. Our early material was dumb, plain, and simple. And moving away from that, I think we've grown into smarter, more creative riffs along with easier to follow songs. It's things like that that mark the evolution of TDWP. 
From here on out, Mike only further distanced Prada from their first three albums. I've had a lot of thoughts on this kind of sentiment over the years because I've had to deal with Under Oath distancing themselves from one of my favorite albums of all time, They're Only Chasing Safety. Listen, I get it. I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago, let alone 15. I'm 26, so I was just a kid back then. But I do get it. If I had to make art in my late teens that got a lot of attention, I'd probably not like it as a little more seasoned adult either. Things change, you grow, you gain knowledge. But that being said, one, you wouldn't be where you are now without that early shit. And two, you are the creator of that art, so it's completely your prerogative to denounce it. But don't do it in a way that demeans the people that it means something to. Their only chasing safety literally changed my life, and hearing members of the band talk down on it made me feel like shit when I was younger. It's the same feeling you get when you're in elementary school and get made fun of for liking something that isn't cool. I don't fuck with that mentality at all. I've seen it everywhere from high school to hardcore to fourth wave emo to metalcore. I don't care if you don't like what you made, but don't make me feel like shit for liking it. But anyways, Prada released Dead Throne on September 13th through Ferret and Roadrunner. Usually when bands evolve their sound, they make too much of a jump and alienate fans, but Prada made their transition from Plagues to Roots to Zombie to Dead Throne perfectly. Dead Throne was the dark heaviness of Zombie with a bunch of the melody all packaged from Roots into 13 songs of proto-scene metalcore. Much of the album deals with idolatry and the toxicity of it, as well as the ending of a long-term romantic relationship that Mike had been in. I watched a lot of interviews for this episode from when Prada were young all the way through 2020, and Mike references that relationship a lot. I think that affected him in more ways than one, and we saw that reflected in Prada, whether it was directly or indirectly. But Dead Throne sold 32,000 units first week and debuted at number 10 on the top 200, giving Prada what would end up being the biggest first week debut of their career. But what goes up must come down, and the second half of TDWP's history sings a much different tune of falling numbers, lineup instability, identity crisis, and more. But unlike many other bands in the scene, they've managed to find a way to survive, and they're doing it on their own terms. But we're going to get to that next week in part two of How the Devil Wears Prada Survived the Scene. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any requests for deep dives, email me at notetoscene at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Note to Scene on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you enjoy the show, please drop a review on iTunes. I'd appreciate it very much. Until next week, stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.